Please turn in your Bibles or your bulletins to Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 30. While you're turning there, I just want to say that the hardest word to pronounce in this reading is probably Herodias. So props to Sally for all of the Old Testament names. Thank you for serving us, Sally, by uh, wading through Akzib and Beth Shemesh, all of those, all of those. All right. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. May our gracious God bless the reading, the hearing, and now the preaching of his word. Well, I wonder, have you ever been accused of sitting on the fence? 
That's an idiom we use to describe people who refuse to decide, or especially people who refuse to take a side in a conflict. You know, sometimes there's really nothing wrong with sitting on the fence. You don't have to have an opinion about every single dispute or argument that's out there. But there are other times when sitting on the fence is actually not an option. There are times when the nature of the conflict means that neutrality is impossible. Our scripture passage from Mark's gospel this morning reminds us that our world is in the middle of a conflict in which it's not possible to go on sitting on the fence. The Bible teaches that we live, all of us, on planet Earth, on the battleground of a cosmic war between the kingdom of God and the dominion of sin, death, and Satan. Ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, just as God promised, uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent have been at enmity with one another. Ever since Genesis 3, mankind has found himself unable to remain neutral toward God. Uh, The Lord Jesus put it like this. He said, he who is not with me is against me. Uh, In our own lives, we find, like Cain did in Genesis 4, that sin is lying in wait at the door, and its desire is to master us. The truth bears out in our lives that either we will master sin, or it will rule over us. We see all of these dynamics vividly uh, in our passage from Mark's Gospel Uh, This morning, our passage records for us, uh, first, the sending out of the 12 apostles, uh, second, the courageous stand of John the Baptist, and finally, the tragic depravity of King Herod. And I hope we'll see this morning that Mark has intentionally weaved these narratives together in order to highlight for us the urgency of taking a side in this conflict between the kingdom of God and the realm of sin, death, uh, and Satan. So four points uh, in our sermon outline this morning. Four points as we walk through the passage. First, an urgent call. Second, a conflicted compromise. Third, a sad enslavement. And fourth, the path of freedom. First, an urgent call. A second, a conflicted compromise. Third, a sad enslavement. And fourth, the path of freedom. So first, there in verses 7 to 13, let's see an urgent message in this passage. You may remember that all the way back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus selected from among his many followers a 12 apostles for a special role. During Jesus' earthly ministry, the job description of these 12 apostles basically consisted of two things. So let me show show you that. Turn in your Bibles back to Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, just one page over in the Pew Bible. There in Mark 3, verses 14 and 15, we read this. And he, that is Jesus, appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. That's the first thing. And he might send them out to preach 
and have authority to cast out demons. Well, so far in Mark's narrative, we've seen the 12 apostles doing a lot of that first thing in their job description, which is being with Jesus. They've been with him basically everywhere that he's gone, as he's done quite a bit of healing and teaching and exorcising, casting out demons. And saints, maybe that's a clue to us that if we want to be sent out to do work for Jesus, first we need to spend time being with Jesus ourselves. In any case, Jesus appoints the 12 apostles in chapter 3, but it's not until our passage in chapter 6 that Jesus sends out the 12 apostles as an extension of his ministry. Uh, The time has come for the disciples to have their first foray into ministry themselves. So notice there in verses 12 and 13 of our passage, uh, the disciples do what Jesus himself has been doing. They proclaim a message of repentance. Jesus has been doing that. They cast out demons. Jesus has been doing that. They heal the sick. Jesus has been doing that. The apostles don't start new ministries centered around themselves or their new methods. The apostles further the ministry of Jesus under his authority according to his methods on his power. It's also noteworthy that Jesus sends the disciples out two by two. Jesus doesn't think that it's a good idea for his servants to do ministry alone. There's lots that we could comment on here in verses 7 to 13, but the really striking thing about these verses is how Jesus sends these apostles out, the manner in which he sends them out. Look there in verses 8 and 9. It says, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And so in this instance, Jesus sends his disciples out with very minimal provisions. And that's very important to note here. Jesus is very clearly not outlining a long-term strategy for missions here. So toward the end of his earthly ministry in the gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his disciples, hey guys, you remember that time that I sent you out with nothing? Did you lack anything? And they say, no, we lacked nothing. He says, yes, that's how God provides for his people. But from now on, if you have a bag, take it. If you have a knapsack, take it. If you don't have a sword, buy a sword and take it. So God's ordinary way of providing for his people often involves their own planning, Uh, and their own resources. So this is not a blueprint for missions. This passage doesn't justify sending out missionaries on uh, an irresponsible shoestring. So why does Jesus send his apostles out with scarce provisions in this case? Well, some have argued that Jesus meant the lack of provisions to force them to trust in God in a radical way. I think that's certainly true. There's something to that. Some have argued it's because Jesus wanted to keep the apostles from becoming distracted by worldly concerns. I think there's something to that as well. Uh, But it seems to me that maybe the main reason that Jesus sends out his apostles on a shoestring in this instance is to heighten the urgency of their message. Uh, Jesus sends the disciples out with basically nothing in order to highlight how urgent this call to repent is. So let me give you two reasons that I think that. So first, this makes sense logistically. So if Jesus sends the apostles out with enough to support themselves, 
then the towns in Israel that they're visiting can take their time deciding whether to listen. So imagine Simon and Andrew, they get sent to town X. Uh, If they have enough to get a hotel room, right, and to buy food for a few weeks, uh, then the town can consider their message slowly and gradually. Well, in some cases, that might be a good thing. But in this case, the apostles are not missionaries to an unreached people group. Right? They're not bringing a never-before-heard message. And at this point in their ministry, it doesn't look like they're, they're seeking to plant churches. In the book of Acts, the apostles will be all about planting churches. doesn't seem like that's going on just yet. See, in this case, God is sending the apostles out to God's covenant people, Israel who have had the witness of the scriptures for centuries. He's sending them out in the wake of these reports about Jesus that have been circulating and his message. The apostles are not yet setting up churches. They're calling people to turn from sin and trust in or declare allegiance to King Jesus. So if if Jesus sends the apostles out with no money, that forces these towns that they come to into a response. I imagine you live in one of these towns in Israel, and suddenly the official messengers, the authorized apostles of Jesus, show up in your town. What do we do? Uh, They don't have anything. Uh, Do we let them go hungry and homeless, or, or do we take them in? Well, do they want money? No, they don't want money. Are they trying to move in? Do we, should we help them build a house? No, they don't want to move in. Well, they've, they've stayed at that poor guy's house. Do they want to move into the bigger house across the street? No, they want to stay where they are. Okay, well, what do they want? They want you to repent. Right? Verse 12, they proclaimed that people should repent, that people should turn from sin to trust in this message they're bringing about Jesus, how Jesus is the promised king of God's kingdom, fulfilling God's prophesied plan. The lack of provisions, in this case, heightens the urgency of the message. That makes sense logistically. And second, it also makes sense in light of the Old Testament echoes that we see in this passage. Uh, It's very interesting. Jesus' instructions to the disciples mention, among other things, in short succession, bread, belt, sandals, and staff. Bread, belt, sandals, and staff. It seems very likely that there's an allusion here to God's instructions to Israel as they are leaving Egypt on the eve of the Passover. So in Exodus chapter 12, God is instructing his people how they are to partake of the the Passover where they're going to eat unleavened bread, God says specifically. And God says this in Exodus 12. He says, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened on, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the night of the Passover, God's message to his people was this, make haste, right? Get your staff, get your belt, put on your sandals, and as you eat, eat quickly so that you can escape enslavement in Egypt into God's promised land. So to be sure, the, the details of like what you can and can't take are different in our passage, but it seems that Mark intentionally mentions those four elements in order to hearken back to that passage in Exodus. Jesus is saying through his apostles, make haste to escape enslavement to the kingdom of sin and enter the kingdom of God. The way Jesus sends out these apostles with minimal provisions highlights uh, the urgency of 
their message. Makes sense logistically, makes sense in light of the Old Testament echoes. So certainly there's a lot that's unique to the mission of these apostles at this time in this passage. There's not a sort of one-to-one exact correspondence between us uh, and the apostles or the people who hear them. But Mark certainly intends for us to draw application from this passage. We, the church, are both uh, the recipients and the proclaimers of the apostolic message, that's what the New Testament is, about Jesus. We are both recipients and proclaimers of the call to repent and the call to trust in the Lord Jesus. And for us, as for them, uh, this message is a highly urgent one. I don't think the whole of the New Testament would commend going out in exactly the same way that the apostles do, Uh, but the New Testament does make very clear that more important than worldly provisions, more important than a comfy home, more important than community or family or politeness is our need to respond to Jesus in faith and repentance, to bow to his kingship, to trust his grace for salvation. Look there at the end, I'm sorry, at verse 11 in our passage. There Jesus tells the apostles, he says, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Why would the apostles do that? Why would they shake the dust off their feet? What kind of testimony would that be? It would be a testimony, a sign, uh, that in the judgment coming on these towns for rejecting the Messiah, the apostles did not want to share in that judgment. It was a sign of dissociation. They said, we do not want to share the fate of this town that has rejected Jesus when his judgment comes. Friends, the same is true for us today, that receiving or rejecting King Jesus is eternally significant. What you do with Jesus determines how you will stand on the day when God judges the world. And therefore, the call of the gospel to turn from sin, to repent and trust in Jesus is urgently important. Friends, we must treat the call of King Jesus to repent, to turn from sin to Christ in trust and obedience as urgently important. Recently, I have been getting into running. One of those weird people who likes to run even when I'm not being chased. Last weekend, I drove down to Culpeper for a race, and I had a good time. I'd like to run more races. I'd like to see if I can improve my time and be about half as fast as Andrew Foray. It's on my agenda to keep running. But to be honest with you, since the race last Saturday, eight days ago, I have not run once. So running is good. I I enjoy it. I I intend to do it again. Helps me stay healthy. It's a blessing. But running really isn't that urgent for me. It just doesn't matter to me that much if I take a week off and get a little slower. Not a big deal. 
Brothers and sisters, I wonder if that's how we can view our relationship with the Lord Jesus sometimes. I wonder if that's how we view the call to repent of the sin that draws us away from Jesus sometimes. Beneficial, valuable, on the agenda, but really not that urgent. It can wait. I wonder whether we think about the call to repent from sin and trust in Jesus as an urgent thing in the way that we interact with unbelieving friends and family and neighbors. I, I have to confess to you, I'm often in conversations with unbelievers and I just feel like, man, it would, just, it would ruin the vibe so much less if I just don't, you know, if I just don't bring up the gospel, you know, if I don't go there, if I don't bring up the gospel. It would just be more comfortable for everyone if we just stayed in small talk zone. And, and I'm not saying you always have to say everything to everyone every time you're in any conversation. That's, that's not prudence. But friends, do we think about the message that we must turn from sin and trust in Jesus as an urgent thing? Are we eager that God would give us opportunities to speak about that with our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus? And may God give us wisdom to know how to share his gospel with appropriate urgency that springs from love for our neighbors, love for the God who is good and in the business of saving sinners who turn to him. First thing to see in our text this morning is that the call to repentance is an urgent call. A second thing to see in this passage, second point this morning, we've seen an urgent call Next, let's see a conflicted compromise there in verses 14 to 20. Conflicted compromise. Did you notice how Mark has structured this whole passage like a sandwich with matching elements on the outside and a different thing in the middle? We've seen in verses 7 to 13, the first part of the passage, those are about the sending out of the 12 apostles. And from verse 14 all the way to verse 29, we get this story about Herod and Herodias and John the Baptist. And then at the other end of the sandwich, what do we get there in verse 30? Look at verse 30. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, right? Is Mark a bad writer? Does he need an editor to help him with his transitions? No, we've seen Mark do this before. Mark is splicing together two stories. Mark loves to do this, to start one, tell a second one, and conclude the first one. And this is a typical storytelling technique for Mark. Some scholars even call it a Markan sandwich. When Mark does that, he's doing it for a reason. He is inviting us to consider how the two stories are interrelated So remember back in chapter 3, Mark spliced together uh, the stories of the religious leaders rejecting Jesus and Jesus' family rejecting him. It goes family, religious leaders, family. It's a rejection sandwich. What do they have in common? Well, they do different things with Jesus, but ultimately they're both rejecting him. Remember back in chapter 5, Mark spliced together the stories of Jairus' daughter, the 12-year-old, and this bleeding woman who'd had an issue for 12 years. It's a healing sandwich. Remember, we have Jairus and then the woman and then return to Jairus. Well, in our passage, Mark splices together the sending out of the 12 to call people to repent, and then this story about Herod and John 
and then the return of the twelve. One commentator describes this passage as a repentance sandwich. Both the twelve apostles and John the Baptist issue an urgent call to repentance. Well, sadly, Herod's response to that call is not to repent. It's to make, our second point, a conflicted compromise. Mark tells us there in verses 14 to 16 uh, that as Jesus' popularity has grown, as various sort of opinions about Jesus have arisen. <clears throat> so some think Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some think he's Elijah based on an Old Testament expectation that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. Other think, others think that Jesus is a prophet. They're not wrong, but they don't have the whole picture. Mark concludes the list of opinions about Jesus with Herod's own opinion. Look there in verse 16. Herod says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Mark begins then to unfold the gruesome story of Herod's beheading of John the Baptist, which doesn't start with Herod's murderous intentions. It starts with Herod's compromise. So the Herod mentioned in our passage, you need to know, uh, is known to history as Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one in our passage. And Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the man in the Bible who tried to kill baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 in the Christmas story. So the family life of the Herodians, you need to know, was an immoral mess. In fact, it's so messy that historians actually have trouble putting it all together. So here's what seems to have happened. Here's what you need to know to understand our passage. So Herod the Great, the father of our guy in this passage, he had 10 wives. He was a polygamist. And for our purposes, we need to know that Herod the Great had three sons, okay? First, he had Herod Antipas, the one that our text is speaking about. He was a client king of the Roman Empire. Technically, he was a tetrarch. That means Herod Antipas ruled basically a fourth of Israel on behalf of Rome. Herod the Great had another son uh, with another woman called Aristobulus, okay? And Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias, okay? So Herodias is the niece of Herod Antipas. Well, Herod, with another woman, Herod the Great, had a third son, right? We've got Herod Antipas, we've got Aristobulus. He had another son named Philip, and Philip married his niece Herodias, the daughter of Aristobulus. And if that's not weird enough, after Philip marries his niece, Herod Antipas, in our passage, says to Herodias, his niece and sister-in-law, you need to leave your husband and marry me, your other uncle. And she does. So there you have a small slice of the craziness of Herod's family. So back to this story. Remember, back in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, Mark had introduced us to a man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a preacher of repentance in the days of Herod Antipas. Well, Mark tells us here that John the Baptist had boldly and repeatedly, it seems, told Herod that stealing his brother's wife was against the law of God. And so when John told Herod, Herod, what you're doing is wrong, 
Herod put John in prison. He didn't want to hear it. Well, Herodias hated John for calling out her sin, so she wanted to kill him. But listen to this. This is so interesting. This is so important. Look there at verse 19. Mark says that Herodias wanted to kill John, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. What a fascinating picture of Herod's heart. Herod is clearly ruled by his selfish lusts. He's shameless enough to steal his brother's wife, who is his niece. He's stubborn enough not to listen to John. He's ruthless enough to throw John into prison for speaking the truth. And yet in his heart of hearts, he knows that John is a righteous man. And so he fears him. Did you see that it says that he enjoyed listening to John the Baptist? John is telling Herod, Herod, what you're doing is wrong. And because Herod is made in the image of God, there's some remnant of the image of God, even in a heart so depraved, he enjoys hearing it. Does he repent? No, it perplexes him but he hears gladly. He even protects John from his murderous wife because he knows that it'd be wrong to kill John. What is Herod trying to do? Herod is trying to sit on the fence. Herod is unwilling to murder John, but he's also unwilling to pay the cost of repentance. And so our text finds Herod making a conflicted compromise. Friend, I wonder whether you've ever found yourself in a less dramatic but similar situation. Have you ever found yourself wanting both to hold on to sin, but also not to close the door on doing the right thing? Have you found yourself unwilling to plunge headlong into sin, but also unwilling to repent? Have you ever found yourself in the position of a conflicted compromise? Well, how does that work out for Herod? When Herod refuses to heed the urgent call of repentance and instead makes a conflicted compromise, what happens? Well, that leads us to our third point this morning, which is a sad enslavement. There in verses 21 to 29, a sad enslavement. Verse 21 tells us about Herod's birthday party. Herod decides to celebrate by whining and dining the VIPs of Galilee. The nightly entertainment is provided by the daughter of Herodias, who comes in to dance before a whole bunch of men. The storyline here suggests that this dance is sexually provocative. I don't think we're meant to understand that Herod was impressed with her technical skill. He was ensnared by her sexual temptation. Brothers and sisters, beware, 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 beware. The entertainment that aims to arouse sinful sexual desires in your heart. Heed Paul's words in 1 Corinthians to flee sexual immorality. Not find the line and camp out right there, but to flee Look away 
Fast forward, turn it off, leave the theater. Do whatever you have to do to turn from the ensnarement of sexual sin. There's no definitive list in the Bible of the movies you can and can't watch. There is a clear call in the Bible to flee sexual immorality. Herod does not flee. Herod is happy to be ensnared. So pleased is Herod by this girl's dance that he promises her in verse 22, ask me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. Probably drunk at this point in verse 23, he doubles down. He says, whatever you want up to half my kingdom. She doesn't know what to ask for. She goes to see her mom, Herodias. She sees a golden opportunity to get what she had wanted. Herodias gives instructions to her daughter. The girl runs back to the birthday party, and in front of the guests who have witnessed Herod's rash vow, this girl says, I want you to give me at once on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Look there at verses 26 to 28. Mark writes, And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went in and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Friends, at the start of this story, John the Baptist is in prison. But do you see what Mark has shown us here? Who is the true prisoner in this story? Who is truly enslaved? Herod is the victim of a sad enslavement, right? Herod is the person in this passage that isn't able to do what he wants. His lust for Herodias keeps him from doing what he he knows he should. His drunkenness leads him into making a vow he knows he shouldn't. His fear of his dinner guests leads him to kill the man that even this tyrant wasn't willing to kill. Remember back in verses 14 to 16, as Mark introduces this story, he introduces it by telling us that as the popularity of Jesus grows, Herod is still haunted by the blood of John the Baptist that's on his hands. He hears about Jesus, and although this is a totally irrational thing to think, he thinks, it's John. It's the man I killed. He's still around. Right? Herod thinks that he can domesticate his sin, but it leads him around by the nose into places that he didn't want to go. Right? Can you see why Mark couples these stories about apostles calling urgently for repentance and Herod failing to heed that same call made by John. Right? Mark's point is clear. The urgent call to repentance allows no neutrality. You cannot hold on indefinitely to sin and to righteousness. One will kill the other in your life. John Owen put it this way. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We may feel that we're able to keep our pet sins conveniently in a corner, but sin spreads like wildfire, it spreads like gangrene, it spreads like cancer. It must be killed or it will kill. It must be mastered or it will enslave. 
Friends, even if you enjoy the preaching of John the Baptist, even if you like listening to true Bible teaching, in the end, if you won't turn from sin in response, in faith, it won't do you any good. Trying to hold on to sin and to righteousness leads to a sad enslavement. It takes us places we didn't want to go, right? We're happy to indulge our anger when anger makes us feel righteous and when it makes us feel powerful. We're, we're fine with anger in those moments, but very soon anger starts to take a toll on our relationships in ways that we didn't want Right? We're, we're happy living for the praise of other people as long as the cost isn't too high. But soon we find that we're not willing to do what we know is right if we know it's going to be unpopular. We're happy indulging a little sexual sin when we don't think it's going to ruin our lives. But very soon we find ourselves ensnared and longing for worse and worse forms of gratification. If we respond to the urgent call for repentance with a conflicted compromise, the result is a sad enslavement. So, brothers and sisters, how can we be free? How can we be free? What is the path of freedom held out to us in this passage? You know, there's a lot that we could say about John the Baptist in this passage. John's willingness to speak the truth is, is an example for us. John's fate is a warning for us about the cost of standing for righteousness. John's steadfastness are a call to courage and perseverance. But I think the main thing that Mark wants us to see about John the Baptist in this passage is that John was made like Jesus. That's the main thing that I think Mark wants us to see in this passage. John the Baptist was made like Jesus. In our passage, there is an evil ruler who wants to kill John. But the evil ruler has to wait until the opportune time to strike. Later in the gospel, there's another righteous prophet who's hunted by an evil ruler. But that ruler has to wait for the opportune time to strike. Right, Herodias, in our passage, she has to manipulate the power of the Roman client king, Herod, in order to kill John. Well, the chief priests and the scribes, what do they have to do to kill Jesus? They have to manipulate the power of the Roman governor, Pilate, to kill Jesus. Herod doesn't actually want to kill John, but he caves into pressure and does it. Pilate doesn't actually want to kill Jesus. But when a riot is about to break out, he caves to pressure. There toward the end of our passage, down in verse 29, we're told that when the disciples of John heard what happened to him, Mark says this, he says, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Mark writes this in Mark chapter 15, verse 46, after Jesus has died. He said, and Joseph of Arimathea, bought a linen shroud, and taking him, Jesus, down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb. Right? Mark wants us to see that John the Baptist had become like Jesus. And John isn't the only one, right? Did you notice the 12 apostles? They, in their ministry, they start to look a little bit more like Jesus in this passage. 
their ministries look like his ministry. Friends, listen, this is the only true path to freedom, becoming like Jesus as we follow him. What is the path to freedom from enslavement to sin? Becoming like Jesus, being made by God into the image of Jesus as we follow him. Later in Mark's gospel, Lord willing, we'll consider how following Jesus makes us like him in service. That's the conformity to Jesus that we see in the 12 apostles. Later in Mark's gospel, we'll also see how following Jesus makes us like him in suffering. That's what we see in John the Baptist. This morning, what I want us to consider is that following Jesus makes us like him in holiness. Following Jesus progressively frees us from sin. See, this is the good news of Mark's gospel. Uh, The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is not that John or the 12 apostles achieved perfection, so go be like them. The gospel is not that you had better try harder than Herod, right? Although repentance does involve effort. The message of the gospel is that God's son, Jesus, lived a life perfectly free from the enslavement of sin. One of the most harrowing lines in the Bible is when Moses tells the children of Israel, be assured that your sins will find you out. Jesus was the one person who didn't have to fear that because he didn't have any sins. But at the end of Mark's gospel, our sins found Jesus out as he dies on the cross as a substitute to pay the penalty for the sin for the compromise, for the pretended neutrality that is sin that we've all committed. And more than just removing the penalty by absorbing the wrath of God against sin in himself, Jesus also, when he died, get this, the apostles say that he broke the power of sin in the lives of everyone who would trust in him. Jesus' death kills the enslaving reign of sin in those who believe in him. This is what we read in our New Testament reading from Romans. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, our old self, the self that couldn't get free from sin, was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The death of Jesus brings the death of sin's reign in our lives. Sin's presence in the life of the believer is not yet gone. We may expect to struggle against sin our entire lives. You don't meet any perfect Christians this side of death or the return of Jesus. But sin's enslaving power to utterly ensnare us, to control us, has been destroyed. If you belong to Christ, you are not a slave of sin. So what should we do? Chill out because the death of Jesus has got us covered? That's not what Paul says there in Romans chapter 6. He says, therefore, don't let sin reign in you. Present your members, your body to God as a slave of righteousness and not to sin as a slave of unrighteousness. In other words, Paul is calling us to heed lives of continual repentance, continually 
turning from the sin that continues to plague us, listening to this call from the apostles and from John the Baptist to turn from sin, to follow Jesus, and as we follow Jesus, to be made like him in holiness, in freedom from sin. I mentioned earlier that the Puritan John Owen uh, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. John Owen understood very clearly that the fight against sin is one that occupies Christians their entire lives. Until we die or Jesus comes back, we don't graduate from a life of continually turning from sin to Jesus. But in Jesus, God has given us everything that we need to grow, to have real freedom, to have real victory, to have real growth from sin in in our lives. Let me give John Owen the last word this morning. He says, you want to you wanna put sin to death? John Owen says this. He says, set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. You want to be free from the sad enslavement of sin? You want to heed the urgent call to repentance? Look at Jesus by faith on the cross. See what the cross says about God, about you, about sin, about Jesus' grace to help you. Owen continues, he says, His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and you will die a conqueror. Yea, you will, through the good providence of God, Live to see your lust dead at your feet. Saints, let's pray that God would work these things in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that it speaks directly to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to heed your urgent call of repentance. Lord, I pray for any here who do not belong to Jesus, Lord, who have not trusted in his death and his resurrection to save them from sin. Lord, that you would help them to heed by faith the call to turn to Christ for the first time. Lord, I pray for those of us who do know Jesus, that more and more our lives would be characterized by continually turning from the sin that enslaves and ensnares and brings death that we might, by your grace, be made like Jesus in conformity to him. And I pray that you would keep us from trying to sit on the fence. Would you work in your people what pleases you by your spirit? Thank you for Jesus. Uh, Lord, would you teach us to set our faith at work on him for the killing of our sin? Thank you for his death in our place. Uh, We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.